Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the works of your divine providence, and especially, Lord, how you have blessed your people in expressing those works through Christian biography. Your word tells us to remember those who have spoken the word of God to us, considering the outcome of their faith, considering the outcome of their conduct following their faith. And Lord, we pray that today, as we consider the life and labors of your dear servant, Daniel Marshall, that by your grace, we will indeed be able to imitate his faith, to follow the manner of his conduct as he labored so incessantly to proclaim Christ and him crucified in 18th century early America. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit will give us ears to hear and give us hearts that will be enlarged with a greater determination, a greater intention to evangelize the lost as our dear brother did so many years ago to his own generation. So, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you have given us now to consider your hand and your work in his precious life. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. I do want to first begin by thanking all of those that were involved in putting together this week's General Assembly. They were very gracious and kind in asking me to come and tell you the story of Daniel Marshall. It is, uh, it is a great joy for me to do this. It's actually the fourth time that I have uh, given this biographical message, but I, I enjoy telling of his life and labors and just seeing the hand of God in the life of this one dear servant. Uh, if you want to dig deeper in studying about his life, his times, uh, 90% of where I have gathered all my material has come from this wonderful book by Thomas Ray. It is entitled Daniel and Abraham Marshall. Abraham was Daniel's son. And the subtitle is Pioneer Baptist Evangelist to the South. It is published by Particular Baptist Press. The subject of our address is Daniel Marshall, and specifically it is Daniel Marshall and the beginnings of the Calvinistic Baptists in colonial Georgia. And before we launch into this address directly, I want to take your attention to the Word of God, and let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to begin reading at verse 18 through chapter 2 and verse 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. May God bless the reading of His holy word. In the year 1884, Georgia Baptists celebrated the centennial of their very first association of churches. Among the men requested at that time to make a contribution to the special anniversary was the esteemed Georgia Baptist Patrick Hughes Mell. Mell was asked to give an address on the subject, the fathers of the association. During this discourse, he spoke of many distinctives which characterized this first generation of Baptists in Georgia. And among those distinctives he highlighted were their theological convictions. Under this heading, Mel stated, as a matter of fact, the prominent themes of the ministry of our fathers were the great doctrines of grace, man's guilt and impotency, and God's electing love. Remarking further on this, Mel said, many of the fathers so preached the great doctrines of grace as to make the distinction between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility realized in the consciousness of their hearers. They preached that God had a purpose of election, and whom he elected, then, in the fullness of time, he called by his word and spirit. Those effectually called, heard, and heeded. And then finally, Mel felt it very important to close this section of his address by stating emphatically, and here I will pause to remark, that the wonderful results of the preaching of our fathers gave impressive proof that the great doctrines of grace are preeminently qualified to bring men to repentance and salvation. And why not? The necessity of God's purpose is based upon man's sin and helplessness, and the burden of their preaching was, O sinner, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in God is thy help. Now, of course, the doctrines of grace which P.H. Mel spoke of as the prominent themes of the ministry of our fathers were none other than what church history has called the five points of Calvinism. 
What Mel, therefore, was revealing about the theology of the first generation of Georgia Baptists was that these men were unashamedly Calvinists. They firmly held and preached God's absolute sovereignty and the salvation of sinners while not detracting nor denying man's responsibility to believe and repent when he heard the gospel. Thus, the faith of the first generation of Georgia Baptists was historic evangelical Calvinism. In fact, we could rightly say that Georgia Baptist theology was rocked in the cradle of Calvinism. But where did this theology spring from in Georgia Baptist history? Or, to ask this another way, when and with whom did the faith of Calvinistic Baptists begin in Georgia? Well, the answer to this question takes us to the main subject of this address, who is Daniel Marshall. And historically, we must introduce our subject not in Georgia but in Windsor, Connecticut. In the year 1706, Daniel Marshall was the ninth of 11 children born to Thomas and Mary Marshall. Daniel was greatly privileged by God's providence to enter this world in both a godly and flourishing home. The exact circumstances surrounding Daniel's conversion to Christ we do not have a record of. However, we do know that it was in 1726 at the age of 20 when he came to faith in Christ. And the fruit of his conversion was so strongly evident by his personal piety that the Windsor Congregational Church elected Daniel as a deacon. This would be a position he held for 20 years. Regarding Daniel's character this time, his son Abraham would write many years later that his father was naturally of an ardent temper and thus exhibited great zeal in his calling as a Christian. He therefore carried out his duties as a deacon with utmost concern to please Christ. In 1742, at the age of 36, Daniel was married to a Miss Hannah Drake. But this marriage would be short-lived. For in 1744, after giving birth to their first son, Hannah died. It would not be until four years later that Daniel would remarry. His second wife was Martha Stearns, who was the younger sister of Shubal Stearns. It was said of her that she was a woman of stalwart character and she would prove to be an invaluable asset and faithful companion to Marshall in all their labors. Dr. Tom Nettles wrote of Martha Stearns, quote, She would be a zealous participant in the sufferings and zealous efforts that soon would come to characterize their lives until Marshall's death in 1784. Now, it would be very important for us to pause here and take notice of two events that would have a lasting impact on Daniel Marshall as to the direction, theology, and ministry he would have. The first event occurred sometime between 1744 and 1745. During this period, Marshall heard the preaching of the great evangelist George Whitfield. The power, manner, and content of Whitfield's preaching would have a life-transforming and lasting effect upon Marshall, forever changing the focus and mission of his ministry. In fact, one could argue that Daniel Marshall would be, in effect, the Whitfield of the South. This would not be because he had great oratorical powers like Whitfield. Actually, Marshall was not a very gifted preacher, per se. But there was an unction of the Spirit on him and an untiring zeal to reach the lost with the gospel, no matter the sacrifice. Moreover, like Whitfield, Daniel Marshall was used of God to not only reach a myriad of people with the gospel but to be the reaper as well as the sower to many souls coming into the kingdom. One of Marshall's contemporaries said, said of him, he is the best fisherman who catches the most fish. So the influence of George Whitfield placed an indelible mark on Daniel Marshall. But there was another event 
which would permanently alter Marshall's ministry and mission. Daniel Marshall had become a Baptist. We do not know the precise time or even the circumstances surrounding this change in his doctrinal convictions, but we do know that in the early to mid-1740s, Marshall had become very obnoxious to the local congregational church in Windsor. He was starting to proclaim publicly, publicly the necessity of the new birth and arguing for a regenerate church membership. To give one example of how angry Marshall's congregational pastor was becoming with his deacon defecting from Pado-Baptist convictions, Henry Stiles, in his History and Genealogy of Ancient Windsor, wrote this. He said, the pastor of the local congregation, having developed an animosity toward Marshall, left Marshall at the graveside and made a public statement about his refusal to perform the service. The people dispersed as well, leaving Marshall alone to bury his deceased wife. Thankfully, Daniel Marshall did not allow such cruel and unchristian treatment to poison his mind or quench his love for Christ and the souls of men. Rather, it is obvious that God's grace was much with Marshall as his passion to spread the gospel only increased and his efforts to proclaim Christ to the lost were magnified. After some years of study, prayer, and deep consideration, Marshall and his wife Martha, with their three children at this time, disposed of all their earthly goods and set out in 1751 to reach the Mohawk Indians for Christ. Marshall's son Abraham described this momentous occasion combined with his aftermath in these words. Firmly believing in the near approach of the latter-day glory, when the Jews with the fullness of the Gentiles shall hail their Redeemer and bow to his gentle scepter, a number of worthy characters ran to and fro through the eastern states, warmly exhorting to the prompt adoption of every measure tending to hasten that blissful period. Others sold, gave way, or left their possessions as the powerful impulse of the moment determined, and without scrip or purse, rushed up to the head in a town called Onaquagi among the Mohawk Indians. One, and not the least sanguine of these pious missionaries, was my venerable father. Great must have been his faith, great his zeal, when, without the least prospect of a temporal reward, with a much-loved wife and three children, he exchanged his commodious buildings for a miserable hut, his fruitful fields and loaded orchards for barren deserts, the luxuries of a well-furnished table for rude savages. He had the happiness, however, to teach and exhort for 18 months in this place with considerable success. A number of the Indians were, in some degree, impressed with eternal concerns, and several became cordially obedient to the gospel. But just as the seeds of heavenly truth sown in tears in this unpromising soil began to appear in their first fruits, the breaking out of war among the savage tribes occasioned his reluctant removal to Pennsylvania. After a short residence there, he removed to a place near Winchester in Virginia. Now, here in Winchester, Virginia... Another major change was to occur in Daniel Marshall's life in ministry. You see, up to this time, Marshall was basically a gospel exhorter. He was neither licensed nor ordained as a minister. Furthermore, having left the congregational church due to his Baptist convictions, he did not even have a church to call home. But in Windsor, Virginia, all of this changed. Daniel and Martha began attending a Baptist church that was connected with the famed Philadelphia Association. After closely examining the doctrine of this church, the marshals concluded that it was biblically sound, and thus they requested to be baptized. 
Moreover, the church also licensed Marshall to preach. Describing this important event, Abraham Marshall wrote, In the 48th year of his life, he was now called as a licensed preacher to the unrestrained exercise of his gifts. And though they were by no means above mediocrity, he was instrumental in awakening attention in many of his hearers to the interest of their souls. But it must be quickly admitted here that not everyone in the church where Marshall was licensed were awakened to the interest of their souls. Some of these church members were actually more awakened to a dislike toward Marshall because of the earnest and probing way he impressed the gospel claims on his hearers. In fact, they were so upset with his passionate and searching way of preaching that they wrote a complaint against him to the Philadelphia Association. Responding to the complaint, the association sent a pastor by the name of Benjamin Miller to conduct an examination of Marshall. Miller's examination would be a thorough search into both the character and theology of Marshall. In addition to this, his investigation would also include Shubal Stearns, who was Marshall's aforementioned brother-in-law, and at this time had joined Marshall in his evangelistic efforts. Since they were therefore a ministry team, if you will, Pastor Miller considered it a priority to probe both of these men together. Now, the significance of this examination is that it would prove that these men were not only Baptists, but they were thoroughgoing Calvinists as well. You see, in 1752, the Philadelphia Association raised a question concerning all the churches and their connections. And the question went like this. Whether a person denying unconditional election the doctrine of original sin and the final perseverance of the saints, and striving to affect as many as he can, may have full communion with the church. The unanimous answer which returned to the assembly stated that whoever harbored such ideas that were contradicting the absolute sovereignty of God over his creatures could not be allowed as true members of our churches. And to be even more specific, the association made it clear that anyone who preaches against the confession of faith and catechism would be denied membership in the churches. So then in 1754, when Miller was examining Marshall and Stearns, he would have been investigated them under this commission given by the association in 1752. Now, what was the final result of this examination? Benjamin Miller reported that if he had such warm-hearted Christians in his church like Marshall and Stearns, he would not take gold for them. He therefore charged those who had complained against them to rather nourish such gifts given to the church as opposed to disdaining them. Commenting on how important this event was for Marshall and Stearns, Dr. Tom Nettles, in his biographical sketch of Daniel Marshall, made these insightful conclusions. First, their giftedness in proclamation and teaching appeared adequate in content and edifying in effect. Second, their spirit though exuberant, did not come under censure as arrogant, prideful, or improperly enthusiastic, but as warmly spiritual. Dr. Nettles, under this point, observed, the regular Baptists of the Philadelphia Association had experienced their share of overwhelming conviction and knew that both despair and joy can periodically overwhelm and alter physical strength. The warmth of the exercises was a delight, not an offense. Finally, their theology supported the strength of the exercises. Concerning this matter, again to quote from Dr. Nettles, he made these careful observations. He said, Benjamin Miller 
fully embrace the judgment of the Philadelphia Association that it cannot allow that any are true members of our churches who deny the said principles of total depravity, unconditional election, effectual calling, and the certain perseverance of God's elect. Had the theology been error cloaked in zeal, he would never have admonished the petitioners to nourish rather than complain of such gifts. So then, we can rightly deduce from Miller's examination that Daniel Marshall was a sound evangelical, a convinced Baptist, and a staunch Calvinist. Furthermore, he was a man who had been awakened with a holy fire to spread the gospel of Christ to as many people as he could reach. He was thus a true missionary at heart. But on the heels of this examination given by Miller, another significant change was now to occur in the life of Daniel Marshall. With this sound doctrine combined with fervent missionary zeal, Marshall and his brother-in-law, Shubal Stearns, along with their families, left Winchester, Virginia. They traveled first to Hampshire County, just 30 miles south of Winchester, but this move would not be permanent. They received several letters from friends in North Carolina informing them that the people were so hungry to hear the word of God that some of them would ride as far as 40 miles to hear one sermon. Thus, with such encouraging news, the marshals and the sterns, along with others which amounted to 16 adults plus children, launched out 200 miles further south for Sandy Creek, Orange County, North Carolina. Hence, in 1755, these 16 adults would constitute themselves into a church which they would call appropriately Sandy Creek. Now, I believe at this point we need to take a brief excursion to state some crucial facts about the Sandy Creek Baptist Church and the Sandy Creek Association, which would be formed from this church. First of all, when the Sandy Creek Baptist Church was established, it was not a part of the Philadelphia Association. This church, along with its members, were what were known as separate Baptists. The separate Baptists were an outgrowth of the Great Awakening in the 1740s. They were originally Congregationalists who had adopted Baptist principles. In fact, I believe that it was the separate Baptist movement that compelled George Whitfield to say rather humorously, my chicks, my little chicks, have become ducks. <laughs> Second of all, what chiefly characterized the separate Baptists was a strong emphasis upon evangelism and church planting. And this is seen very dramatically in the ministry of the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. For example, consider their message. George W. Pascal, in his history of North Carolina Baptists, described the content of what was preached by the Sandy Creekers. He said, they declared that no human learning, no human morality would bring one into saving relations with God. That to be saved, one must be born again. That no regular and prolonged course of introduction was necessary to bring one into acceptance with God, but only repentance and faith, that to as many as received Christ, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, that this was brought about by the irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, that the one saved had immediate revelation of it in his soul. Commenting further on the preaching of the Sandy Creek ministry combined with its effects, Thomas Ray observed, the preaching of Stearns and Marshall plus the church's members transformed lives and testimony had a profound influence upon their neighbors. Soon, many of them also came to experience the power of the gospel, and their testimonies of salvation filled their acquaintances with great wonder and amazement. A mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit fell upon the truth proclaimed by Stearns and Marshall, resulting in multitudes of new converts. In 17 years, Sandy Creek 
had branches southward as far as Georgia, eastward to the Atlantic and the Chesapeake Bay, and northward to the waters of the Potomac. It had become the mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother of 42 churches with numerous branches from which 125 ministers were sent out as licensed or ordained preachers. The world has seldom witnessed a more consecrated devotion to Christ than was displayed by these mostly untrained and unsophisticated preachers of the gospel. Finally, we must recognize that the passion for evangelism in Sandy Creek did not diminish or weaken their Calvinistic convictions. Now, why do I make this a major point? The reason I must emphasize this is due to a myth that has pretty much become an urban legend which has circulated for the past 10 years or more within the Southern Baptist Convention about Sandy Creek. The myth claims that the Sandy Creek Association was a revivalist movement which was anti-credal and opposed to the doctrines of grace as expressed in historic evangelical Calvinism. Now, the reason this myth has been advocated is due to the resurgence of Calvinism in the SBC, which has highlighted the fact that the founding leaders of the convention were Calvinists. Those who don't like this history have tried to circumvent it by declaring that Southern Baptist roots are actually more prominent in the Sandy Creek Association, which was not Calvinistic, but revivalistic and essentially Arminian. But the truth is, the facts of history are clearly on the side of Calvinistic Southern Baptists when it comes to the theology of Sandy Creek. Although I have already proven the Calvinism of Marshall and Stearns, it would not hurt my case to also quote from the official doctrinal statement of the Sandy Creek Association, which was written in 1816. In Articles 3 and 4, we read this, that Adam fell from his original state of purity and that his sin is imputed to his posterity, that human nature is corrupt and that man of his own free will and ability is impotent to regain the state in which he was primarily placed. Article 4, we believe in election from eternity, effectual calling by the Holy Spirit of God and justification in his sight only by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And we believe that they who are thus elected, effectually called and justified, will persevere through grace to the end that none of them will be lost. And if I may add one more document which proves the case of Sandy Creek Calvinism, I'll read a portion of the first article of the Church Covenant written by none other than Daniel Marshall in 1772 for the Baptist Church he would plan in Georgia, which was called Kyoki Baptist Church. It says, according to God's appointment in his word, we do hereby in his name and strength covenant and promise to keep up and defend all the articles of faith according to God's word, such as the great doctrine of election, effectual calling, particular redemption, justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, sanctification by the Spirit of God, believers' baptism by immersion, and the saints' absolute final perseverance in grace. Also, denying the Arian, Socinian, and Arminian errors, and every other principle contrary to the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, there is simply no question or doubt, if we are honest with the facts of history, as to the confessional Calvinism of the Sandy Creek Baptist Church and its association. They were great evangelists and great Calvinists at the same time, diminishing neither their mission nor their doctrine. Now, returning back to Daniel Marshall, Sandy Creek in 1755, 
It was less than a year before the church sent him out to preach the gospel and plant churches. His first missionary endeavors were at a place called Grassy Creek in Granville County, North Carolina. His son Abraham would write of his father's labors there as faithful and incessant that became the happy means of arousing and converting numbers. The enduring fruit of Marshall's labors at Grassy Creek would be twofold. First, the joining of this church into the Sandy Creek Association. And second, the conversion of a man named James Reed, who would eventually become the pastor of Grassy Creek Baptist Church and would go on to have an extensive ministry as an itinerant evangelist in Virginia. Now, following Marshall's labors at Grassy Creek, the next door that God's providence would open for him would be at Abbott's Creek. This new ministry came by way of request from a man named James Younger. Younger was in search of a minister who would come to Abbott's Creek, just 30 miles from Sandy Creek, and plant a church there. In response to his request, Daniel Marshall was sent to preach the gospel to the community of Abbott's Creek. And like so many other times, God gave Marshall a great unction in his preaching with a large harvest of converts to Christ. Thomas Ray, in his biography of Daniel Marshall, tells us that Marshall's ministry prospered so greatly that the people petitioned the mother church, that is Sandy Creek, for a constitution and the ordination of Daniel Marshall as pastor. So in 1756, at the age of 50, Daniel Marshall was ordained as the pastor of the newly constituted Abbott's Creek Baptist Church. But now that Marshall had assumed a new set of responsibilities as a pastor, we must recognize that his passion for itinerant evangelism was not quenched at all. In fact, he actually became more active and was delegated by Shubal Stearns to spread the gospel in the adjacent parts of Virginia. And the results of Marshall's evangelistic labors in Virginia was the baptism of 42 people with the constituting of a new Baptist church called the Dan River Church. This occurred in 1760, and it was the very first separate Baptist church in Georgia. But by 1790, there would be 210 separate Baptist churches with about 250 ordained and licensed ministers spreading the gospel throughout Virginia. Historian Waldo P. Harris made this important comment on the Virginian fruit. He said the success of the whole work in Virginia is directly traceable to the spirit and energy of Daniel Marshall, who traveled far and wide wherever there was an opportunity to preach, baptizing many converts. Now, at this time, having labored in both North Carolina and Virginia, and being privileged to see God's hand prosper the work of his kingdom, so, dramatic, so dramatically in multiple conversions and in the planning of new churches, Marshall believed that God was moving him to direct his services further south. So in 1760, he traveled to South Carolina and planted another new church at a place called Beaver Creek. But of course, the establishment of a Baptist church was not a welcomed sight by everyone in this region. In fact, even in Virginia, North Carolina, Marshall and his fellow separate Baptists came under great scorn, gross misrepresentation, ridicule, harassment, and persecution by both civil and ecclesiastical authorities. One example of this came from the lieutenant governor of South Carolina, who referred to Marshall and his co-workers as Baptist vagrants, who continually endeavored to subvert all order and make the minds of the people giddy with that which neither they nor their teachers understand. Yet in spite of this kind of opposition, as we've already seen, Daniel Marshall was not impeded to serve Christ nor spread his gospel. For in 1762, Marshall had moved forward with another church plant in South Carolina. This time he established a new church at Stevens Creek, which was just about 10 miles from Augusta, Georgia. Thomas Ray tells us that this new church became the center of Marshall's activities over the next several years. 
Moreover, Daniel Marshall also became the pastor of Stevens Creek. And it was here that his son Abraham came to faith in Christ. When Marshall's labors in South Carolina came to an end in 1770, he had been instrumental in the planting of eight churches and laying down the foundation for many others. But on January the 1st, 1771, Daniel Marshall, along with his family, crossed the Savannah River and entered Georgia where he would spend the remainder of his life in labors to the Lord called him home on November the 2nd, 1784. Marshall was 65 years old when he came to Georgia. Now, to appreciate the, this, how significant this move was, we need to back up to 1770. During that year, Marshall was already making evangelistic trips to Georgia where he would preach in private homes or any such building, and if none were available, he would quite literally preach under the trees. On one of these occasions under the trees, Marshall was arrested by the local constable, Samuel Cartledge, for illegal preaching, which went against the rights of the Anglican Church. Now, what followed this event is an amazing story of God's grace in both conversion and bold preaching. When Marshall was arrested, one of his hearers, a man named Hugh Middleton, gave security for Marshall to appear the following week in court. Marshall, therefore, continued his preaching openly in defiance of both ecclesiastical and civil tyranny. And to make matters even more scandalous, he publicly baptized two of Middleton's relatives. Now, on the following Monday, when Marshall appeared in court, he stood before a Colonel Bernard and an Anglican minister named Ellington. Ellington basically took control of the trial and acted more like a magistrate than a minister. He harassed Marshall with questions and tests of his intelligence and literacy. He even commanded Marshall to read a chapter from the Bible to prove if he was literate. At the conclusion of Ellington's persecution, he ordered Marshall never to enter Georgia again and preach. In response to this, Daniel Marshall simply said, Whether it be right to obey God rather than men, judge ye. So then, when Marshall moved to Georgia on January the 1st, 1771, he was coming in spite of his arrest, in defiance of the courts, but most importantly, in obedience to Jesus Christ, his Lord, no matter the cost. And it should also be mentioned as a matter of praise to God's grace that both the constable who arrested Marshall and the civil authority who stood over his trial were each converted to Christ. One of them under Marshall's ministry and was in fact baptized by Marshall. Now, once Marshall entered Georgia to settle permanently, Baptist history would become a part of Georgia history. In 1772, Daniel Marshall organized the very first continuing Baptist church in Georgia, which was called, as I've already mentioned, Kayoki Baptist Church. This one church under Marshall's leadership and the legacy he left would become responsible in his first 40 years, directly and indirectly, for the planting of 140 Georgia Baptist churches, which saw the addition of almost 11,000 members. Furthermore, as mentioned earlier, the doctrinal foundation of this church was evangelical Calvinism. In fact, evangelical Calvinism would be the confessional consensus for all Georgia Baptists in the first generation of its history. This is why in 1884, the aforementioned centennial for the Georgia Baptist Association, P.H. Mell contended that the prominent themes of the ministry of our fathers were the great doctrines of grace. Therefore, Baptist beginnings in Georgia were rooted in a strong confessional Calvinism. Now, prior to Marshall's death in 1784, he would be personally responsible for the planning of three Baptist churches in Georgia, which included Kayoki, and he also oversaw the organization of two more. 
But what is really important about this is that Marshall never acted alone in such endeavors. In fact, throughout his long and enduring ministry, one of his greatest gifts was his ability to inspire, instruct, and equip men for the ministry. Marshall nurtured men who were called by God to preach the gospel. During his years in Georgia alone, which amounted to a mere 13 years, there is a list of 14 different men Marshall trained who would go on to be faithful pastors and influential Baptists. In addition to training men for the ministry, Daniel Marshall was also a leader in Baptist cooperation. This influence was particularly magnified during his ministry in Georgia with the organization of the Georgia Baptist Association, which was established in 1784. This was, as I've noted from the beginning of this address, the very first Baptist Association in Georgia that started with only five churches. But certainly above all, Daniel Marshall was a powerful preacher of the gospel. It is here where our biography of Marshall finds a fitting place to conclude. From the very beginning of his conversion in 1726 to just a few months prior to his death in 1784, Marshall was a man with a passion to proclaim Jesus Christ at all costs. Observing this fact, Marshall's biographer Thomas Ray wrote the following words, which really serve as an epitaph to the life and ministry of the very first Georgia Baptist. He said, although Marshall was not considered a great orator, his success in Virginia, North and South Carolina and Georgia proves that he was a powerful preacher, both in content and delivery. His sermons always emphasized the necessity of the new birth and were characterized by sincerity and a heartfelt compassion for his hearers. His son describes him rising in the pulpit, which he had frequently besprinkled with his tears and from which he had as often descended to weep over a careless audience. Bold and independent and undeterred by danger or criticism, Marshall traveled to any place he could to obtain a hearing, instructing, exhorting, and praying for individuals, families, and congregations, whether at a public gathering, a barn raising, a wedding, a race, a public market in the open field, before an army, or in a house of worship. Wherever he was able to command attention, he preached and exhorted men to repent and turn to God. Some thought he was deranged or a religious fanatic, but the fruits of his labors demonstrate that he was constrained by the love of Christ. Now, with these very few minutes that I have, let me close this study with at least five lessons that I want us to glean from Marshall's life in ministry. Lesson number one, the most effective preaching is not in our natural abilities, but in the divine power of the Holy Spirit. As we've already stated, Daniel Marshall was not a gifted orator. In fact, and this is rather humorous to me, one of Marshall's contemporaries, a man by the name of Morgan Edwards, expressed surprise at the success of Marshall's ministry after hearing him preach. He said that Marshall was not eloquent, but stammered in his words, and he was certainly not a scholar. But of course, such human evaluation of Marshall's preaching reminds us all that authentic success proclaiming God's word comes not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. Lesson number two, as we preach the gospel, we must always be aware and confident that it is God alone who gives the increase. Think about the circumstances in which Daniel Marshall preached the gospel. Were they really favorable to ushering people into God's kingdom? Were they? What we have seen from Marshall's life was a culture that for the most part was hostile to biblical Christianity. Marshall faced the depravity of man in his day just as we do in our own. 
He faced hearts that were essentially dead to God wherever and whenever he preached. He even encountered a religion in early America that had the face of Christianity, but not the heart nor the power. So how then do we explain the multiple conversions and mushrooming of new churches across the South? Beloved, there is only one explanation. God gave the increase. This truth is the flip side of the first lesson. As Daniel Marshall preached in the power of the Spirit, God worked that same power in the hearts of the people which produced genuine conversions. But the big point here is that it was God alone who did this, not Daniel Marshall. Regarding the same matter, Dr. Tom Nettles observed, Marshall gives flesh to the reality that God does not delight in the legs of a man. He is not dependent on human talent or ingenuity, but on his own determination to build his church and to use whatever instruments he desires. Lesson number three. Our faithfulness to Christ will not win us the universal approval of either the world nor the church. From his early years as a Christian to his last days on earth, Daniel Marshall endured scorn, hatred, slander, exclusion, and harassment for the sake of Christ and the gospel. But as we've already noted, such persecutions did not slow down nor hinder this soldier of the cross from being faithful to what God had called him to do. The lesson here, however, is that we cannot expect to be rewarded by either the world nor the church for our faithfulness. We should not expect the universal applause of men. Remember what Jesus said. I send you out as sheep among wolves. Our faithfulness to Christ and the gospel will not be served just among friends. The world, in fact, will hate us. And not everyone in the visible church will be eager to receive the teaching of sound doctrine. This is the station of every faithful minister in Jesus Christ. We will suffer for the gospel. But like Daniel Marshall, may we do so with joy and not with bitterness. Lesson number four. Our ministry should always be preparing the next generation. Daniel Marshall was truly a great model for the imperative of 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. And what you... Heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. In the wake of Marshall's life and example, he left behind him in Virginia, North and South Carolina, and Georgia, an army of mighty men who would go on to serve Christ with great faithfulness. He was always preparing the next generation of gospel ministers. First, in the churches he planted, he would personally nurture those men that would be called to the ministry to eventually take over those congregations. Second, he would not permit any licensed minister to be ordained without a season of rigorous training. In response to this aspect of Marshall's ministry, Thomas Ray said, The achievements of the man who passed through his school proved the worth, wisdom, and permanence of his method. But, of course, the challenge here for all of us as pastors is this. Are we seeking to pray diligently for God to raise up men in our midst who will serve the church in the next generation? And are we prepared to prepare them? Final lesson is this. The theology of true historic Calvinism has never been the killer of missions and evangelism. As we all know too well, the most common slander against Calvinism is that it destroys zeal and effectiveness for evangelism and missions. But the, fact of, the facts of church history say something entirely different. And Daniel Marshall is certainly one case in point. Marshall was a confessional Calvinist. He held to the essential tenets of the Philadelphia Confession and its expression of the doctrines of grace. However... Such strong convictions in God's sovereignty to save never put out Marshall's fire to reach every person he could with the gospel. And why? 
Because Marshall understood, as every consistent Calvinist does, that God has ordained the, me- the means as well as the ends to his eternal redemptive purpose. Evangelism is the means God has ordained to accomplish his saving purpose in bringing his elect to the salvation for which they have been chosen for. So we preach the gospel with the confidence, listen, with the confidence that those whom God has chosen to save will be saved. Consider what Charles Spurgeon once said on this very same point. If there are so many that will be saved, says one, then why do you preach? That is why we preach. If there are so many fish to be taken in the net, I will go and catch some of them. Because many are ordained to be caught, I spread my nets with eager expectation. I never could see why that should repress our zealous efforts. It seems to me to be the very thing that should awaken us to energy. That God has a people and that these people shall be brought in. So then... True historic Calvinism is not the killer of evangelism and missions, but rather it is what emboldens us to go out and proclaim Christ to all men everywhere with this assurance that our Lord Jesus himself gives us in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And with this in mind, let me leave you with this final challenge. Knowing that all of God's elect will be saved... And knowing that God saves his elect through the means of evangelism. My dear brothers, how earnest and bold and deliberate are we to proclaim Christ to all men. Listen, we may be evangelical Calvinists in our confession. But we can become hyper-Calvinists in our practice. So... May God use Daniel Marshall as both a model and a witness to preach Christ to all men with the undergirding confidence that God will save his elect for the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.